Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, this is a good time to put it in the saved folder and come back whenever you're ready. Otherwise, let's go. Who is one of the biggest icons of black history in the United States and the world that you've never heard of? Aside from Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, Jesse Jackson, or Frederick Douglass, who's the lost ancestor of black radicalism, a master teacher, leader of leaders, and one of the most significant black democratic socialists of the early 20th century, America? and who was a stone-cold atheist, we'll all find out. This and more on Rare Red. Free thought, stories, gender, politics, blackness, education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and, and more on Rare de las Casas. The Indies were discovered in the year 1492. 49 years have passed since the first settlers penetrated the land. The first being the large and most happy isle called Hispaniola, perhaps the most densely populated place in the world. There must be close to 200 leagues of land on this island, and all the land so far discovered is a beehive of people. It is as though God has crowded into these lands the great majority of mankind. And of all the infinite universe of humanity, these people are the most guileless, the most devoid of wickedness and duplicity, the most, the most obedient and faithful to their creative, to their native masters and to the Spanish Christians whom they serve. And because they are so weak and complacent, they are less able to endure heavy labor and soon die of no matter what malady. Yet, into this sheepfold, into this land of meek outcasts, there came some Spaniards who immediately behaved like ravening wild beasts, wolves, tigers, or lions that have been starved for many days, killing, terrorizing, afflicting, torturing, and destroying the native peoples, doing all this with the strangest and most varied new methods of cruelty never seen or heard of before, and to such a degree that this island of Hispaniola, once so populous, having a population that I estimated to be more than three millions, has now a population of barely 200 persons. Their reasons for killing and destroying such an infinite number of souls is that Christians have an ultimate aim, which is to acquire gold and to swell themselves with riches in a very brief time disproportionate to their merits. It should be kept in mind that their insatiable greed and ambition, the greatest ever seen in the world, is the cause of their villainies. And also, those lands are rich and so felicitous, the native peoples so meek and patient, so easy to subject, 
that our Spaniards have no more consideration for them than beasts. No, for thanks be to God, they have treated beasts with some respect. I should say instead, like excrement on the public squares. The Indians began to seek ways to throw the Christians out of their lands. They took up arms, but their weapons were very weak and of little service in offense and still less in defense. The Christians, with their horses and swords and pikes, began to carry out massacres and strange cruelties against them. They attacked the towns and spared neither the children, nor the aged, nor the pregnant women, nor women in childbed, not only stabbing them and dismembering them, but cutting them to pieces as if dealing with sheep in the slaughterhouse. They made some low, wide gallows on which the hanged victims' feet almost touched the ground, stringing their victims, victims in lots of thirteen in memory of our Redeemer and his twelve apostles. Then set burning wood at their feet and thus burned them alive. When tied to the stake, the cacique Hatue, a very important noble, was told by a Franciscan friar about the God of the Christians and the Articles of Faith and he was told what he could do in the brief time that remained to him in order to be saved and go to heaven. The cacique, who had never heard any of this before and was told he would go to Inferno where, if he did not adopt the Christian faith, he would suffer eternal torment, asked the Christian friar if Christians all went to heaven. When told that they did, he said he would prefer to go to hell. To hell. Since we're now grounded in, in the Caribbean by that striking reading from one of my old friends in New York, Stacy Ann Chin, check this out. A historic work of scholarship, a superb study, a definitive biography, an epic tale. Those are just some of the reviews of our next author, biographer, and special guest of 2021's Legacy Program, Jeffrey Perry. Let's turn the table to a Caribbean island and talk about one of its natives. This is someone who is truly an unsung hero, truly one of the most neglected and powerfully influential figures in Black and African American history. Someone far too many know about, including myself for a long time. Let's turn it over to Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry. Just to the right of Puerto Rico extends a long chain of Caribbean islands known as the Lesser Antilles. There to the southeast lies a little island which was once known to the Taino as Ai Ai for thousands of years before it and others were eventually renamed by Christopher Columbus on his second voyage, venerating the Catholic legend of St. Ursula and 11,000 virgins. His imperial expedition was of both church and state and culminated after 700 years of African Islamic rule back in Southern Europe. Already accompanying him in these early ventures were enslaved Africans. The Taino and Arawak people would soon be dealt the same fate. And following their forced religious conversions, trickery, disease, and virtual genocide, Africans would now dominate the lands as slaves. 
For generations, back-breaking work, organizing, rebellion, labor, and class struggles would characterize their experience and produce brilliant minds. One of the great minds ever to come from this little island of I.I., now St. Croix, was a young man named Hubert Harrison. At the turn of the 20th century, Harrison would eventually leave for New York City and later become regarded as the Black Socrates, sparing movements and changing the way Black people think and organize about race, religion, and class. Today on Legacy, the voice of Harlem radicalism, Hubert Harrison. The man of the hour, Mr. Jeffrey B. Perry. Thank you so much, Ro and Mandisa. I, it's truly, I'm so pleased to be doing this. And I, I've really enjoyed the opening remarks by both of you. And I'm getting old. And just to hear what you folks are speaking about just utterly warms my heart because the work I've done on Harrison for 38 years now, mm-hmm. it, it was always my hope that be, there would be people picking up on it and building on it and taking it in new and deeper directions. And I think you are part of the effort that's developing out there. First off, I'll give a little background. I, I plan to talk about 25, 30 minutes in the opening about Harrison okay. with the overall free thought atheist agnostic movement. And there's much more to him, many dimensions to Harrison. And wherever the hosts in the audience feel they'd like to go, we can take it. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Thoreau, we, uh, I've got a friend downstairs. We've been moving. We're in the process. I placed over 100 boxes of Hubert Harrison papers at Columbia University a few years ago and over 100 boxes of Theodore W. Allen's papers at UMass Amherst, which is where Du Bois's papers are. And Allen's the author of The Invention of the White Race and pioneered white skin privilege analysis back in 1965. 25, 20 years before Peggy McIntosh and all that later wave, right? Right, right. And his is a class-based, a class-struggle-based analysis. Uh Um, But today we've been trying to move because I think Columbia might want to take another 80 boxes very soon. So I've been surrounded. I've got boxes all over. And my wife says it's about time you start moving these (laughs) things out. So she's right, as usual. Uh Um, So I just want to mention on Harrison... um, we have two books, and you held up the first one, which is Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, uh, 1883, when he's born, till 1918. That's basically when he's founding the New Negro Movement, the militant New Negro Movement. He founds it in 1917. The second volume, which was just completed last December, Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. Uh, a couple things. Um, each of these books can be obtained from Columbia University Press at a 20% discount if people go to their website and use the code CUP20. This second volume, <laughs> I don't know if you can see, that's a thousand pages. Volume one is over 600 pages. I started work on this in 1983. This is the first full-length, multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fourth of an African-American after those of Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Langston Hughes. So this Crucian is a giant (laughs) of Caribbean and uh, uh, of Afro-Caribbean and African-American history. And um, in addition to that, I published some years ago, 
at Wesleyan University Press, there's a nice picture of Harrison, a Hubert Harrison reader, which has 138 of the articles he's written. Um, and I've located um, over 500 and transcribed maybe 400 of them. The rest, if I can stay healthy, we're gonna see if we can get them put out. Oxford wants to do a book. I've thought about a, a second reader. And one other book I put out for Diasporic Africa Press. This one I edited. This one I edited, Diasporic Africa Press. It's Harrison's book, When Africa Awakes. But what's very important is the subtitle of the version of this version. Uh, it's Harrison's subtitle, The Inside Story of the Stirrings and Strivings of the New Negro in the Western World. And this book is from 1920. It contains 53 articles by Hubert Harrison on the New Negro Movement, the militant New Negro Movement, five years and more before Alain Locke comes out with the New Negro. Harrison, the, the fact that Harrison was not better known for these last hundred years is, is a real loss to all of us, and we can get into that. Absolutely. Of course, his thoughts on religion are one factor, you know, uh -huh. and there's others. Uh -huh. But um, so, just as a background, I mean, he is a total giant, and he's increasingly recognized as such. Now, in the Afro-American Museum down in D.C., on the New Negro Wall, is Alain Locke and Hubert Harrison, all of a sudden he appears. Columbia University, where I placed his papers, but I've got much more, finally did what we had agreed to, and about a year ago, they uh, posted online over 1,200 items from his papers, including his diary of over 230 pages. And I'll talk about the diary. And you can go online and read this stuff and print it out. And it's fascinating. He's very, his writing, he's got a good, clear handwriting. Free, you can do this stuff for free. Oh, and if you go to my website, jeffreybperry.net, you will find all kinds of free information, articles, videos, and um, audios on Harrison and on Allen. My uh, video on Allen, which also has 12 minutes on Harrison in the beginning of it, I think is just hitting 305,000 views. It's a two hour video. So that the videos are nice because you can start running them, stop when you wanna go get a cup of coffee, whatever you wanna do come back or come back another day and they and they go with slides so you'll get a good feel for what these people are about i think and they have uh pictures too so i try to make it nice and easy and useful for people um but so what i want to do as i said so i want to open with some about 25 minutes of prepared remarks on harrison and the free thought movement and then we can talk about wherever else people would like to go so when I open up, um, I have a quote from Richard B. Moore, who's from Barbados, who's an outstanding Afro-Caribbean, he's from Barbados, and an outstanding Afro-Caribbean Harlem activist and bibliophile. And Richard B. Moore um, was active in the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, movements for West Indian Federation liberation, and he ran a wonderful bookstore in D.C., uh, for many years on 125th Street, and he was a close friend of Harrison. And um, 
Parenthetically, I stay in touch with his daughter, Joyce Moore Turner, who lives in, um, in Maryland, not far from you folks in DC. She lives in Silver Spring. And within the past year, she came out with an, uh, a journal article in the academic press on another Caribbean activist, Ethelred Brown, and uh, uh, who became a Unitarian minister. You know, he kind of broke from the major uh, branches of the church. And then he founded, after Harrison died, the Hubert Harrison Memorial Church, which really wasn't a church. Harrison couldn't believe, or people couldn't believe there was a Hubert Harrison Memorial Church since he wasn't a, a churchgoer exactly. And uh, it lasted about 10 years. Um, but uh, Joyce Morturn is still alive and active and might be somebody you folks want to talk with at some point. Um, but uh, so Moore offers this quote in 1928 in the Amsterdam News, uh, New York Weekly. He says, Hubert Harrison was the first great atheist of our race, a fearless thinker and a courageous fighter. Now, Hubert Harrison, who was he? St. Croix, Virgin Islands, Harlem-based Hubert Henry Harrison, 1883 to 1927, was a brilliant class and race conscious writer, orator, editor, educator, and book reviewer, and an extraordinary political activist and radical internationalist. He was also a pioneering activist in the free thought movement. Historian Joel A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color described him as an intellectual giant who was perhaps the foremost Afro-American intellect of his time. Um, labor and civil rights activist A. Philip Randolph, referring to a period when Harlem was considered the center of radical black thought, called him the father of Harlem radicalism. The Afro-Caribbean Harlem activist and Richard B. Moore, as I said, called him the first great atheist of our race. Harrison played unique leading roles in the largest class radical movement of his day, the socialist movement, socialist party, and the largest race radical movement, the new Negro slash Garvey movement uh, of his era. He was a major influence on the class radical Randolph and on the race radical Marcus Garvey, and on activists and a phrase he used with affection and on the common people. He was of the people. As a matter of fact, these photos on the covers of his books, particularly on the second one. First one uh, has Harrison at the Liberty Congress. The full photo is inside the book and it's at the uh, a protest in, during World War I and William Monroe Trotter, you can't see here, but he's right on his side. And men and women from 35 states went down to DC to protest. Woodrow Wilson had said, let's make uh, the world safe for democracy. And Harrison was arguing and others, let's make the South safe for democracy and many other things. They opposed lynching, segregation, disfranchisement, and uh, they wanted federal anti-lynching legislation. But in this second picture, and I'll just point this out because people might not know it when they see the cover or they see the cover online. That's a meeting of Harrison speaking on 135th Street. And I know a few people in it, the people I know in, in the picture are free thinkers or atheist agnostics, including Miller and W.A. Domingo. And, um, but the people, the men, the women are neatly dressed and the men are wearing jackets and ties. 
But as was pointed out to me by Harrison's daughter, she said, Jeff, please let your, the people you, you speak to know that these are working people. They would dress up a little when they went to an activity in the evening, but they might've been an elevator operator or you know, somebody working you know, behind the scenes in a building or in an office or something like that, or, or many other jobs. And, uh, but they're working people. And that's who Harrison affiliated cons- with almost all the time. Um, now, uh, in 1917, Harrison founded the first organization, the Liberty League, and the first newspaper, The Voice of the Militant New Negro Movement. So that other book I showed you about uh, When Africa Awakes, that includes his write, many of his writings, not all, from 1917 to 20. And there are over 50 articles on the New Negro Movement by Hubert Harrison in that period, years before Elaine Locke comes out with his publication. Um, uh, And Harrison's New Negro Movement was an important precursor to the civil rights and black liberation struggles of the 1960s. He was amongst his generation, uh, he was the most class conscious of the race radicals and the most race conscious of the class radicals of his era. And he's a key link in the two great strands of the civil rights black liberation struggle. The labor and civil rights trend associated with Randolph and Martin Luther King Jr and the race and nationalist trend associated with Garvey and Malcolm X. Harrison's pioneering work in and around the free thought movement, though less well known, was of similarly seminal importance, and it was at times undertaken at great personal risk. The Montserratian activist, writer, and freethinker Hodge Kiernan in the January 1928 Truth Seeker wrote, Quote, I'm quoting, Harrison was one of the ablest exponents of rationalism in the city and was the first and foremost Negro in the cause of free thought. His scintillating wit, irony, profundity, and wide range of knowledge attracted thousands of persons during his many years of outdoor and indoor work. Historian Rogers discussed Harrison's writings in such radical and anti-religious periodicals as The Call, which was a socialist party uh, weekly, The Truth Seeker. Uh, which was a uh, free thought paper, and the Modern Quarterly, um, a leftist publication, and described how his views on religion and birth control were often opposed by Catholics and Protestants alike. Rogers added that at his open air meetings, he and his friends were obliged to defend themselves physically from mobs at times, never hesitating to speak, no matter how great the hostility of his opponents. If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our Legacy Video Program Archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc., all one word, directly. You can find every Legacy video from Season 1 and Season 2 there, plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you online. Jeff Perry. I'm an independent scholar, and I've spent um, much of my past 30 plus years researching work with Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen compared to.
Okay, Harrison's break from Christianity. As indicated earlier by Rowe, Harrison was born on a state Concordia, St. Croix, Danish West Indies, to a laboring class Barbadian mother and a formal, formerly enslaved Crucian father. He grew up in poverty, was intellectually self-motivated, had access to some books in the library of St. John's Episcopal Church in downtown Christiansted. They would let him go into the library and pull books off the shelf and read them, and benefited from instruction by an excellent teacher, the father uh, of D. Hamilton Jackson, uh, who's a cohort of his, and uh, his father was considered the best teacher, um, black or white, on the island. After the death of Hubert Harrison's mother in 1899, Hubert traveled to New York in 1900 as a 17-year-old orphan and lived with his sister on the west side of Manhattan, started working and began to attend high school. Harrison's travel to New York and to the States following his elder sister was a pattern that we often see in early Caribbean immigrants. The, uh, a female would take the lead in the family and, uh, you know, and pave the way for others to come afterward. Harrison's first great intellectual transformation occurred around 1901 when he broke from his previously held religious views. His diary entry of May 20th, 1908, and he lost his first diary, so he restarted a diary in 1907. And his diary entry of May 20th, 1908, describes in great detail the tremendous intellectual turmoil he underwent circa 1901 as he divorced himself from Orthodox and institutional Christianity and became a, quote, agnostic. The break was not affected at once. It came in stages. In the course of his study, he read Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. Harrison was an omnivorous reader. He read widely everything. Later on, the librarian at the 135th Street Library said they had nobody who read as many books as he did, always. And he would stay up till 2, 3 in the morning. And uh, when he would give his talks, it's often... Unlike me, it would be often right off the top of his head, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind. In the course of his study, uh, he read Paine. In a lecture he delivered years later, Harrison explained, as quoted in the February 11th, 1911 True Seeker, that Paine popularized the arguments against Christianity and brought them down to the level of democracy. He considered Paine's significance to be, quote, the dual aspect of militant unbelief and democratic dissent, two characteristics that were truly representative of the thought of our time. Interestingly, Harrison would encourage militant unbelief and democratic dissent for the remainder of his life. The actual process of breaking with religion brought with it emotional pain and Hubert used this as a spur to system building. In his diary, he explained, I was not one of those I was not one of those who did not care. I suffered. Oh, how my poor wounded heart and soul cried out in agony. I saw the whole fabric of thought and feeling crumbling as its very foundation. And in those fearful weeks of stern reactions, I could not console myself as so many have done with the busks of a super uh, braggadocio. What had gone was the authenticity of the Bible, 
that which I had been taught was the word of God. So when my Bible went, uh, my, uh, my God went also. And of course, in the U.S. in particular, a black church was the most powerful institution in black community at that time. And Harrison's making this break. It's a major break in worldview. And this is early, first decade of 20th century. Then as he gathered himself together, he also developed a new philosophy of life. He wrote, time, the great healer, closed the wound and I began to live internally. But now I had a new belief, agnosticism. That's what he calls it at this time. He explains why. I said belief. What I did mean was a philosophy of life, a point of observation, attitude towards things. You must have when you know or you will cease to live. He then added, now I am an agnostic, not a dogmatic disbeliever, nor a bumptious and narrow infidel. It gives me the keenest pleasure to engage in dialectic with the Bulgarian infidels who assume the name of agnostic without knowing what it means. If I am to explain myself, I would say that I am, in my mental attitude, such an agnostic as Thomas Huxley was, and my principles are the same. Harrison was influenced by Huxley, another one he read in his wide range of reading. And over the years, he would include works by him on his recommended reading list. Huxley was known as Charles Darwin's bulldog, and he was a leading exponent of evolutionary theory, and he popularized the concept agnostic. Harrison emphasized that Huxley's agnosticism was not a creed, but a method by which in matters of intellect, you follow your reason as far as it will take you without regard to any other consideration and do not pretend that conclusions are certain which are not demonstrated or demonstrable. This enabled Huxley, who refused to put faith in, which, in that which, he does not, which does not rest on sufficient evidence, to look the universe in the face, to believe in the sanctity of human nature and to develop a deep sense of responsibility for his actions. In his diary, Harrison concluded that he would never be anything but an agnostic because, as he wrote, I prefer to go to the grave with my eyes wide open. Hubert's grappling with a philosophy of life and his decision to put humanity at the center of his worldview took its toll. He did not have the rituals, institutions, or certainty of faith often provided by organized religion. Painful as it was, Hubert's break um, from religion made possible a healthy critical approach to all other matters. The step had a certain logic as had been noted in 1844 by a young Karl Marx, who at that time was similarly developing critical talents in a worldview. Marx pithily stated, criticism of religion is the premise of all criticisms. Marx also added, religious distress is at the same time the expression of real distress and the protest against real distress. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of an inspiration, inspirational situation. It is the opium of the people. Early three free thought related writings and activities. While he struggled inwardly, Hubert also began to extend his views outward by writing letters, participating in working class African-American intellectual circles and coming into contact with free thought influenced organizations. One of his earliest published letters concerned the English labor agitator organizer and self-described uh, philosophic anarch uh, anarchist John Turner, 
who in 1903 was arrested in New York and imprisoned on Ellis Island in preparation for deportation. Uh, the law provider for the exclusion of anarchists or those who believed in or advocated overthrow of uh, the government by force. While Turner did not believe in or advocate the use of force or violence, he also did not believe in organized government and he was being prosecuted and deported for what he did not believe in. Turner was defended on free thought and free speech grounds by the truth seeker, by the Manhattan Lutheran Club and the Free Speech League. And these groups organized a December 3rd meeting at Cooper Union in New York. After a December 5th New York Times editorial, Harrison wrote a letter published in the Times, New York Times of December 15th. He maintained that in this age of so-called free thought and free speech, it was a duty to aid the weaker side when the side seems to be in the right. He added that to deport a man for ex exercising the right of free speech when the exercise of that right limits none uh, of the natural rights of anyone else was unjust, tyrannical, and uh, therefore undemocratic. Un undemocratic. Harrison, between 1903 and 1910, would have about 12 or 14 articles published in the New York Times. This is at a very early age. He starts writing when he's still in high school. And by the way, when he's in high school, um, he wins citywide honors. He's working five days a week and a couple nights and he gets citywide honors. He's brilliant. And one of the New York papers headlines an article, genius found in West Indian pupil. You know, his, his brilliance was shining forth continually. Um, well, another free thought Harrison related letter appeared in December, September 25th, 1909, New York Times and discussed Moncure Conway, who was one of the most popular authors of the free thought movement and a biographer of Payne. Harrison's letter challenged a previous letter, which held that it was never, that it was never, that it never was impractical for Conway to live in Virginia. Uh, Harrison countered elaborating reasons, uh, impractical was in quotes, because uh, somebody in, in the Times had said that, for Conway to remain in that state, and he emphasized, American history owes much to the man who wrote the life of Thomas Paine. His diary writings and early letters to the Times indicate that Harrison's interests were becoming quite secular. He was an agnostic and he was attracted to science, to evolutionary theory, and to some of the radical and progressive intellectual movements of the day, including free thought, free speech, civil liberties, single taxism, and socialism. It is noteworthy that Harrison met freethinkers active in all these movements. Sunrise Club and the Free Thought Movement. Harrison began attending activities of the Sunrise Club, a free thought influenced interracial form around 1905. The club was organized in 1889 by Edwin C. Walker and it held dinner meetings every Monday in Manhattan. Its aim was to blend alert and social, uh, alert thought and sociability, introducing to one another men and women of all vacations, parties, creeds, nations, and races, and it emphasized that on all topics debated, the widest race of opinion is heartily welcome. Harrison assisted at one 1905 um, Sunrise Club activity, and uh, over a thousand people attended. So Harrison was getting a wider ex exposure. Over the years, Harrison would speak at the Sunrise Clubs and uh, up until the 1920s. In this period, Harrison increasingly came in contact with the organized free thought movement, which was a rationalist anti-religious movement with a strong base in New York and a weekly paper entitled The Truth Seeker, which is still published to this day, 
founded in 1873 by D.M. Bennett. Its principal editors in Harrison's years were Eugene uh, Montague MacDonald and his younger brother, George Everett MacDonald. The paper described itself as a free thought and ag an agnostic um, newspaper that, that's thought to educate the people out of religious superstition. Excuse me for one second. Uh, it supported free speech, free press, and free mails, and demanded taxation of church properties, complete separation of church and state, and ends to school prayers, blue laws, and courtroom oaths. Early, early 20th century free thinkers supported science, denied the infallibility of the Bible, asserted the human rights of the Old and New Testaments, denied the existence of heaven, of heaven and hell, upheld the theory of evolution as opposed to biblical genesis, and held that morality and ethics, or man's relation to man, was entirely independent of creed or religion. This talk has really been one of my most treasured and favorite presentations in all of the legacy work that we've done and in what we've presented here for you as the listener. But I'm a little biased, I'm cruising, so I'll put that aside for the moment. We're gonna put a pause right here and we're gonna come back with the second half of Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry's talk and presentation from Legacy about my man, Hubert Harrison. We hope you'll return for more and check us out. We're now on Twitter. The podcast Where We're Headed is on Twitter at WWH Podcasting. So you can find us on Twitter, add us, follow us, We'll be using that account to share a lot more information about the episodes, the guests that we've had, and information on our little production team that we've got over here running the show. All right, we'll see you soon. Take care.